knew that and knew that was coming. And uh, as a church, as individuals, we ought to be grateful for the freedoms that were purchased for us by the blood of those who served in our armed forces and who gave uh, their lives. And that's what Memorial Day is about. Sometimes it's confused with Veterans Day. Veterans Day, when we recognize all of the veterans, Memorial Day, we recognize those who have given their lives in the service of our country. And we'll pray about that in just a moment. And then also for mentioning El Reno and the, uh, the surprise. Nobody really expected that, did they? And uh, yet the loss of life there. And also the, the, the loss all across the state of Oklahoma, up north of us with the incredible floods. Some of you have seen those pictures and people have lost, in terms of material things, virtually everything. And uh, so we need to pray for them as well in just a few moments. We're going to stand and read this passage of Scripture. And uh, so would you please stand and we'll read uh, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I have to wonder what it would have been like for this letter to have been read back in that day. And somehow we have to try the best we can to transport ourselves back or let the words come up to us very personally. And uh, so just listen to these words, some of the most scathing words in the book of James so far. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. and Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Father, the first thing that I want to, to say to you is that I am so grateful for your word because your word tells us the truth sometimes in a way that is not easy to take, but that we need to hear. I thank you, too, that because we are, are going verse by verse through one of your books in this inspired volume, the Bible, that this is not just some preacher's hobby horse to try to manipulate people into giving money, but it is, in truth, the word, the very word of you, our almighty God. And so, Father, help us as we study today. Help us to 
glean exactly what we need to. We know that this was spoken to a particular group. We pray that we might have an application for every person in this room, no matter what age, no matter what status in life. And Father, we also pray as a congregation, Jim mentioned this a minute ago, but we once again lift up to you our brothers and sisters and then others outside the family of Christ who have been impacted by this terrible tornado last night. For those to the north of us who have been impacted and even around us who have been impacted by the flooding, Lord, we pray for them. I appreciate Jim's emphasis. Lord, help us in light of this message today to not hoard but to give generously where that need makes itself known to us. Father, we also thank you for the fact that we can today honor the men and women who gave their lives so that we might right here today experience and enjoy the freedom to worship you and to send missionaries and to do all of the things that we do as a church. Lord, sometimes I hear this referred to as the ultimate sacrifice in terms of this life. That could be true, but Lord, let us let this sacrifice point us to truly what was the ultimate sacrifice, the giving of the blood of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to give us a freedom that is beyond physical, that is truly spiritual, to give us life that is everlasting. And so while we honor these men and women who gave their lives We worship and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his lifeblood for us. Now, Father, please help me to communicate through Scripture and through example, um, illustration, everything that we have at our disposal, these vital words of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle James. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I said it a minute ago, let me say it again in case you didn't feel it. These are the most scathing, the harshest words that James uses in this letter. I'm afraid sometimes that as we read things like this, we just brush by them rather than let them search our own hearts. Now, one of the things that could be confusing to you, and I, I hope at least that you were You were asking a couple of questions. I I would imagine that you were asking some questions beyond that. But one of the questions that probably would have come up in some of your minds was, who exactly does James mean here? To whom is he writing? And, And I believe that the audience, it's very clear. You notice that throughout the book of James, he is referred over and over again, just about every section, and he'll mention this word, in in several times in every section when he's writing to believers and followers of Jesus Christ, he will call them brothers or beloved brothers. And you see that this section is devoid of that. Which leads a lot of commentators. I am with those commentators who believe that this was written not directly to Christians 
But it was written, now you have to transport your back, yourself back there to that day, but it was written to rich, unbelieving Jews who were most likely in that day and time very wealthy landowners. You can see that from the context. Who were also misusing their wealth and taking advantage of the poor. Now, I believe that James did this for a couple of reasons, because he wanted to speak to the poor in the congregation. But could it be also, much like it would be here today, could it be also that some of those rich, unbelieving Jews might find their way into the church and be sitting there while this letter was being read? My guess is that James wanted the full weight, the full impact of what he was talking about to come to bear on their hearts so that they would be shaken out of their complacency that so often wealth gives us. They would be stricken to their hearts and they would repent and find life in Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you saw it when I read it. I I tried to read it slowly and deliberately, and sometimes, again, things get lost in the translation. But here are some of the themes that come through in this passage of Scripture. Judgment is coming. Did you see that? I want you to see something else. In, In this passage, in this passage alone, we're isolating it. We're going to expand on it a little bit later. But in this passage, there is no call to repent. I was thinking of the stark contrast between this song and, the, and, and the, the, the time that has gone before us and the songs that we've been singing about the, the gospel of the grace of God. I want you to look in those six verses. There is no gospel and there is no hope that is being offered. Maybe some of those who were listening thought, Well, that's not for me. I'm a believer, and I'm not rich. And my guess is that some of you sitting in this congregation today might be thinking something very similar. Hey, this part that that the pastor is preaching today, wow, I can sit back and relax and think about something else. Because this, this really couldn't be for me. I'm a Christian. He's writing to non-Christians. So I'm a Christian and I'm definitely not rich. But there was something there for those poor believers and there is something there for us as well. Here, here are a couple of things that we need to realize. First thing, for those suffering injustice, and, and I, I think James was giving a foreshadowing of what he was about He was getting ready to say because next week, the Lord willing, we'll be coming back to the next section, which begins in in, uh, uh, verse 7. And three times he tells those Christians to be patient, be patient, be patient. And the theme is because the Lord is coming. Because the Lord is coming, then he is going to set everything straight. So that's one thing. I think he's giving those believers, those poor believers, a a, a sense 
of comfort. But there's another thing, a second thing that we need to see. There is a sobering application there was for them and there is for us. Because inherent in this passage of Scripture is the call that every person in this room who names the name of Christ has, and that is the call to stewardship. So let's go back. Let's put this in the context. If you'll remember two weeks ago, we were in James 4, 13 through 17. Anybody remember that? The context of that passage? If I could paraphrase it, here's what it's saying. It's saying, believer, stop acting like you are in charge of your own schedule. Stop saying, it starts with almost the same words. Stop saying, hey, you know what? Today or tomorrow, I'm going to go do this or that. Now, let's put this in the context of reality if we could. And I don't know where you were at about the time that the tornado ripped through El Reno. And I have no idea about the the two at least, we know two, who lost their lives last night. But my guess is that they were, and this is appropriate, this is okay, they were making plans for today. Kind of like you have. And they thought to themselves, we'll get together with family. Maybe tomorrow we'll have a cookout. We'll go to church. We'll have a fellowship later on. We'll eat those good-looking hamburgers that Jim pointed to a few minutes ago. And, and, And James just reminded them, and he reminds us, look, you have no idea what your life is going to be like for the rest of the day. And so that's why you always ought to set your scheduling into the context of if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. That was the message from last week. So if James is saying, stop acting like you're in charge of your own schedule, your own, let's look at it this way. You've heard of the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. Time, talent, and treasure. Basically, that's all you have. You've been given a life. You have time, temporarily. You have talent. You're to put to work for the, for the glory of God, always. And you have treasure that's been entrusted to you that can come in a lot of different forms. And so last week, we dealt with time and talent. Don't presume upon God. Let everything you do be put to work to glorify God. Well, now he shifts direction. And here he's meddling, and this is what Christians typically don't like. Now, now strictly, I'm not preaching about money, but if I had told um, in, in many congregations, not this one, seriously, if I had told many congregations next week I'm going to be preaching on money, probably a lot of them would have stayed away unless I was promising that if you had faith, you'd get more. So it's not a popular subject, but, but if, if we hear it right, then what, what James is saying stopped acting like you're in charge of your treasure, of your stuff. Okay, let me ask you a couple of questions. 
I, I, I want to do this individually with you. Are you a Christian? Okay. Second question. Do you belong to Christ? Then what does that mean? Let me give you a couple of verses that will help you. We've got a lot of scripture, so jot these down. And I've compiled some. I realized this morning I've got way too much scripture. And so I've combined some of these. But let's just listen to what the scriptures say about who we are as Christians. Who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Do you not know that your body is a temple, not just a container Think of it as a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Everybody in here is a church, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now look at this. You are not your own. Whose are you? You're Christ's. Because you've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Second reminder, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 and, and this is so vital that we see this for people who have said, now, wait a minute. By the way, this creeps up on us, and we're going to see some things about arrogance and the attitude of those who have wealth. It creeps up. We don't think we're arrogant. We don't think we're prideful, but sometimes we are. Let me just tell you sometimes the little thought that goes through my mind and I, I, I really, I could be the only one. It shows you how carnal I really am. You pray for me. Because there are times when I drive up to one of the panhandlers on the street, and one of the first things I do is gauge how they look to see if they're deserving of my handout of a McDonald's $5 card and a tract or more sometimes. Or nothing sometimes. But I can tell you there is something that creeps into my thinking as well. Particularly if someone, if someone looks a little bit nicer, a little bit of ability, a little bit more well-fed. And I'm thinking to myself, it just goes through my mind. I, I repent of it quickly. You could work like I do. And included in that little phrase is this very subtle, prideful thing that, hey, I've worked for what I've got. And I've heard Christians say that. Now, I'm not against hard work, and God, there are all kinds of things. We'll talk about saving and all the rest of that in just a minute, the difference from, uh, between that and hoarding. But, but we have got to see that there is a bedrock principle in the Bible. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you worked hard and you've got the ability to do some things that other people don't, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything we have, including the ability to get wealth, comes from a sovereign God. We need to see that. And here's another verse. Deuteronomy 8, 17, first part of 18. And it, this goes back into history. This gives an illustration. Most of the illustrations that I'm going to use today are biblical illustrations. There was a people one time in a land far, far away. 
See, we, we, we usually put the, we push these off. But th this was the people of God, and they forgot God. If you go in and you read all about how God was bringing them into the land, he was giving them all of these good things and, and all the rest, beware, Israel, church, that you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you the power to get wealth. So, that's one thing. Now, second thing. We need to confront this thing. Um, people who, in this congregation, when I said the rich a minute ago, you automatically, ext, mentally, you exed yourself out of that. All right? Because you said to yourself, I'm not rich. Now, some of you might have said you're rich, but I, I think the majority of American Christians would say <clears throat> in, in one way or the other, I'm not rich. Those, I'm not like those really, really wealthy. I'm not a Bill Gates or a Mark Zuckerberg. or Is that his name? I, I'm not like one of those guys. So let me just ask you a follow-up question. How rich are you? Maybe here's another question that's more fair. How rich do you feel? There's an interesting website. You ought to go to it. It's called the Global Rich List. The Global Rich List. You can insert your annual income, and it gives you some comparisons. So I went to it. I just inserted several that you might be interested in. The median income of... Uh, Oklahoma, as I understand it, or maybe it's United States, is somewhere around $60,000. And if you make the median income, $60,000, some of you are saying, I, I wish I could make that. Some of you saw that way in your rearview mirror, but if you make $60,000 a year, you're better off than 99.98% of the people in the world. If you make $40,000, a year. You're better off than 99.4% of the people in the world. And if you make minimum wage in the state of Oklahoma, you make approximately $14,000 a year, and you are better off than 90% of the people in the world. You make $7.25 an hour. You think that's not much. Compare that with Ghana. Eight cents an hour. Indonesia, do you know how long it would take them to make what you make in a year? Eighteen years. At our minimum wage. And in the country of Azerbaijan, a month's salary at $14,000 a year would pay the monthly salary of 61 doctors. If you have a cell phone, if you have a car, if you have a house, if you have a closet full of clothes, if you have running water that's drinkable and electricity, 
you are doing better. You are far richer than millions of people in this world today. Now, with that, let me say that. I, this is what I, I, do you understand what I'm trying to do? Half of preaching is apologetic, where I'm trying to get you to see a point that everybody in this room that I can tell is rich, okay? So we don't get to get out of it when James talks to the rich. But now let me step back and say to you, I, do, I am not trying to get you, listen to me, to feel ashamed even though there is no need to dance around the truth, you are rich. Do not be ashamed. Just make sure that you are, what did we call it a minute ago? A steward. And that you listen to heaven's counsel for what you are not to do and to do with your wealth. You see, money is neither good nor evil. I hear, I hear this all of the time. One of the greatest misquotes about money, and they say it's from the Bible, and here's what they say. Maybe you've said this before. Money is the root of all evil. True or false? False. Money is neutral. What does that verse out of 1 Timothy 6.10 really say? It says the love of money. The desiring for money. Got to have it. They say the best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. Now, I just quoted an old song. That's not a hymn. It's an old rock and roll song. But that is essentially the problem with people today. There were plenty of rich saints all through the scriptures. There was Abraham, there was Job, there was David, there was Joseph of Arimathea, there was Lydia. We just talked about Lydia in our Sunday school, our IBF lesson today. There was Philemon. It's what you and I do with our money and what money does to us that we allow that matters. The Bible never discourages the acquiring of wealth. But what it does condemn in no uncertain terms is acquiring wealth in the wrong way and misusing it. And here's what James says. So, buckle up. We're going to run through. The, you see all that? That was the introduction. And we're, we're going to take a, a few minutes on each point and go through this. You see it. How not to get riches. That's the first point that we see right out of the scriptures. First thing, do not reap riches at the expense of others. Again, the context, very wealthy landowners and poor day laborers. And this was, this was a part of the culture of Israel going all the way back to the very beginning. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not be re remain with you all night until the morning. And here's what these people were doing. These very wealthy landowners who had everything and then some that they needed. What they were doing was holding over. I don't know, maybe for interest or whatever, but they would not pay when they were supposed to. And do you know how devastating that would be to a day laborer? 
that money that he was going to make at the end of the day was to be used to buy food and maybe, maybe, maybe some clothing, maybe some other essentials. And so if that man worked hard all day mowing the fields or whatever, and then he went home empty-handed, his children had to go to bed hungry. Don't make your wealth at the expense of others. You know what that says to Christians, to you and to me? Pay your bills on time. Pay your bills that which is owed to others for their work or for their service to you. Pay what you owe on time. That is so simple, but it's so incredibly important. One of the things I hate, I hate to hear as a pastor is about men who call themselves. It's always been men. I, I don't know that I've ever heard about a woman, I'm sure, in our culture today. But men who say they are Christians who defraud and take advantage of those who are less advantaged than they are. It just breaks my heart. There's a thing called the Christian Yellow Pages. You ever heard of that? Well, not so much anymore. You guys never heard of the Christian Yellow Pages. That's because nobody uses Yellow Pages anymore. That's one thing. But, but I used to hear the, this all the time. I will not do business with a guy who advertises in the, in the Christian Yellow Pages because of the fear of being defrauded, because they've, they've gone around with that. Let your talk be exemplified by your walk. Second thing, told you we're going to rip and run through these. Do not use riches to ruthlessly manipulate others. Now we say, well, we don't have a problem with this. Yes, we do. We see it on an expanded basis. But basically, by the way, you've heard the old statement, what's the golden rule? What's the golden rule? Now, no, what's the, what's the secular golden rule? He who has the gold rules. And so here you are. This is a situation where this poor day laborer was defrauded of what was due him. What could he do? Could he take the guy to court? He might come and make an appeal. What, what would the wealthy landowner do? And you've got to see, again, this is an unsaved, uncaring person my guess is he'd say, so sue me. See what you can get. And, and there are people in corporations all over the, the world and in our country that will go after the, the little guy and they'll use their backing to squelch. See, a little bit earlier in James chapter 2, he, he reminded these Christians, why do you show preference to the rich when it is those people who drag you into court? and take advantage of you. You see, what this does is compound the first problem. First problem is bad enough, but when somebody has the court system and back then, you could buy the judges. Can't anymore, can you? I hope not. In every system of man, money talks. Okay? 
So if they complained, they could be dragged to court. In, in fact, a little bit later on, you see I've, I've put in the first part of verse 6 into that, where, where it says that you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Most likely that is not literal murder, but it, it would be the same thing as because the taking advantage would so put that person down that he would essentially have life ripped out from under him. So that's, that's how not to get riches according to James. That's an application for believers. He's condemning non-believers for that, but that's an application. Let's move on to the second one, verses 3 through 5. How not to use riches. This is where it gets interesting. First thing, do not, and every word is there for a reason, do not uselessly hoard riches. Do not uselessly hoard riches. Folks, is there anything wrong, according to the Bible, with saving? No, there is not. This is a combination of three parts of three verses that just has the same thought all put together here. Let me share with you what the Scripture says. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And he goes on in 2 Corinthians, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. That is a general principle. And then later Paul says this, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's not wrong to save for those needs that you and your family will have. So, what's the difference between saving appropriately and hoarding uselessly? Let's turn to Luke chapter 12, if you would. Luke chapter 12. Too much to put on the screen, so we're just going to read Luke chapter 12. This is a classic example. I read this last week, read it this morning again. I thought, you know, this is a classic picture of retirement in America. Am I saying retirement's wrong? Hold on. We'll get to that in a minute. But listen to this story. It shows a picture of uselessly hoarding. Verse 13, 12, 13, Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man who made me a judge or arbiter over you. And he saw the real problem, covetousness in that man's heart. So he goes on to tell a story. Master illustrator. And he said to them, to the crowd. He's, he, he heard a direct question. He's saying it to the crowd. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life, listen to this, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions and he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully now stop right there I can imagine this guy was a hard worker he might have read Proverbs and he put his hand to the till he worked from from before the sun came up to after the sun came down and his land produced is there anything wrong with that nope 
verse 17. The problem begins to come in. Here's what I did. I circled every personal pronoun. Look at the number of times when he he talks about himself rather than about God. By the way, the most important conversations you have are conversations you have with yourself. You need to be preaching to yourself the gospel of this book rather than listening to the, the carnal thoughts that come up. Here are the carnal thoughts that came up to him. What shall I do since I have nowhere to store my crops? First problem, who gave him the ability to get his wealth? Then he said, I will do this. Notice he leaves out if the Lord wills. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods lay up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Nothing wrong with retirement, but that's the wrong picture of retirement. If you want to switch gears until the Lord takes you home, that's fine. I don't see anywhere in the scriptures where it says that we who are followers of Christ are to give up being followers of Christ until we breathe our last. That is our vocation. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. David Platt said, I recorded these words in your worship guide. We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. Hoarding riches. How not to use riches? Another one is do not live in luxury and self indulgence. Let me just show you a couple of, and some of these are, will be familiar. We just saw the story of the, the, the rich fool. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be married. Th- then there's another story about a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, the problem is they had no thought of God exactly what James is saying. Come now, you who say, this is my stuff, and I will do what I want with it. Instead, they should have said, whatever you will, Lord, that's what I will do with it. Let me show you one other passage of Scripture. It's from the Old Testament. It may seem kind of an odd one. You remember a town by the name of Sodom? Do you? What is Sodom famous for? There's a word that actually was coined from that name. What is it famous for? Sodomy. Homosexuality. That town didn't start with that. You know what they started with? Look at this. Now, this is an incredible passage of Scripture. I encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter of, of, X, uh, of Ezekiel, chapter 16. 
He's talking about your sister Sodom, your sister sister was Samaria. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, watch this, had pride. There was an arrogance. Remember when I said just a minute ago that sense of arrogance in what I have? I've done this rather than say, oh Lord, if I have anything, it's from you and it is for you. They had excess of food. They had prosperous ease. By the way, is there any country on the face of the earth that you think just sounds a little bit like this? Besides Sodom? But they did not aid the poor and needy? We'll get to this missed opportunities in just a second. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. And because of all of that and culminating with that particular abomination, I removed them when I saw it. Now, not to use riches. Don't hoard. Don't live in self-indulgence. Let's go on to verses 1 through 4. What misused riches will always do. And please underscore the misused riches. By the way, first one is, misused riches will always vanish from your grip. I said something a minute ago about money, money talking, but I heard a guy say, if money talks, all it ever says to me is goodbye. He mentions three categories of commodities. Grain, because that, that's how wealth was measured. Grain and, and, and houses and stuff will always rot. Garments, did you know garments were... were not only precious, but they were passed down as part of an inheritance. But guess what? Moths get them. And if you've never had an infestation of moths, they just get into everything and they will eat and eat. And they don't do it immediately, but they just do it over time. And then, of course, the the things that like gold, silver, precious stones, you know, eventually, we say those don't corrode. Yeah, eventually they will because the Bible says it. Don't ever think, here's what he's saying, don't ever think that there's ultimate security in wealth. Luke 12, 20, Matthew 6, 19, God said of him, fool, this night... Your soul is required. Things you have prepared, whose will they be? Do not lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust. Isn't it amazing that Jesus talked about this? And here's James, his brother. Rust a story where thieves break in and steal. They will vanish from your sight. Second thing, misused riches will erode your character. Again, please hear this. Money is not the problem, but there is something very subtle that the love of money will become the root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They will erode your character. I think of Demas. What a sad story. Demas, who was a, a partner of Paul's, who was apparently with him when, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome and Demas was there, but then toward the end of Paul's ministry when he wrote to Timothy, he said, and I don't know what happened, but it said, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. 
parable of the sower, the third soil. I, I fear more than anything for Christians today in the parable of the sower that, that there are many people who are third soiled hearers. And I don't believe those people are actual Christians. There are people who begin to, to look as if they're producing fruit. They may even be in the church. But you know what ultimately pulls them away so that they are unfruitful? If you combine the three Gospels, it says the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, and the pleasures of life. And in the Bible, we're told to redeem the time, make use of every opportunity. And that's why the third thing, misused riches will blind you to precious opportunities. The context of these verses is money. Okay? Just see how it's true. Maybe in your life and maybe in the lives of people you've known. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, you see. You're healthy. Your whole body will be full of light. You will see the opportunities that come your way. But if your eye is bad, if it's been blinded, by your wealth, your whole body will be full of darkness. But then the light is in you is darkness. How great is the darkness. You know what I'm grateful for in this church? I'm grateful for those who get it. I was visiting several weeks ago in another church. I try to do that whenever we're not here. We had the opportunity to visit Chuck Swindoll's church in Frisco, Texas. Huge megachurch. And I, I, it was just a thrill to hear Chuck Swindoll well into his 80s and still preaching, still going strong. We're sitting there with our friends. They're about our age. Katie and Jackson were there. So the, the, the song director came up and said, Take your hymn books. Katie, and we we were looking around, and Fred turned, my my friend turned to Katie and said, y'all don't use hymn books? Katie said, ask my dad. (laughs) Fred turned and said, y'all don't use hymn books? I said, no, we sing off the wall. (laughs) Well, later on in the service, the plate was passed. Fred turned to Katie and said, Don't tell me you don't take up an offering. She said, ask my dad. (laughs) And I just whispered to him, I said, Fred, I, I, I really mean this. We don't have to. Because God's people, when they're motivated to be good stewards, and I thank God, not everybody, but but most people in this church, you get it. You realize that you're but a steward of the the resources that God has given you, and you faithfully give week by week with little or no mention of it. That's an opportunity. But I thank God that many of you, well beyond your American retirement years, you are involved in ministry. You're going to go until you can't. Thank God for you. Last thing. Misuse riches, 
will vanish from your grasp. They will erode your character. They will blind you to precious opportunities. And they, misused riches, will ensure your future judgment. Weep and howl. Miseries are coming upon you. Your riches will eat your flesh like fire. I'm just quoting from what we read a minute ago. They will get this, those riches that you're hoarding, they will someday turn around and they will testify against you. Again, the rich man, the fool, and the rich young ruler, blinded by wealth to opportunities to lay up treasure in heaven. Their treasure on earth might have brought about temporary satisfaction, but it also brought about their eternal torment. I said it a minute ago, there's no hope given in this passage to those who live their lives arrogantly misusing the wealth that God has entrusted them. In fact, Jesus said in his interview, after the interview with the rich young ruler, he said, you guys don't get it. So difficult is it for a rich man to be saved. It would be easier for an, a camel to go through the, the, the eye of a needle. And folks, he was being literal. Because they were shocked and they said, then who can be saved? And that's when Jesus came back. By the way, I said there's no gospel in this in James, but there is gospel in James. Because Jesus said with men, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And if you look at the larger context and you slide your finger up to chapter 4, verse 6, look at what it says. God is opposed to the proud, to those who pridefully dig their heels in and say, I don't care what this book says. I'm going to use what, what I have, what I have made the way that I want to do it. God is opposed to the proud, but what does he promise to do? He will give grace to those who humble themselves. If you're a person here today, and you've not yet humbled yourself, would you do that today? Would you believe that you have sinned against a holy God, that Jesus sent his son to die on the cross? to forgive you of your sins, but to change your, your nature, to give you a new heart so that you can become a follower of Christ. If you're here today and you are a follower of Christ, remember to quit acting as if you are in charge of the things that God has given you. Become a steward of the manifold grace of God. Father, I thank you that you teach us, sometimes in hard words, but always in loving words, the reality of the gospel. And I pray now that people would respond, those who don't know you would respond to the gospel, that those of us who know you would respond to the gospel. You have died for us. We are changed people. Lord, change any area in us where we have violated these things that we've been talking about and help us to walk with you once again. Hear our prayer for the glory 
of you, our great God, and for the good of us, your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.